guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. Hey friends, welcome back to the pod. This is your host, Melissa, and you're listening to Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast, where we celebrate the voices and stories of women past and present. And today we have another women's history episode, but before we get into it, I wanted to remind you guys about my new mini-sodes with Mel series. I've only launched one episode so far, but we have our second one releasing next Thursday. It's a very special episode for Mother's Day. And the coolest thing about this mini-series is that I am going to be featuring your voicemails in these episodes. So if you're a longtime listener and a fan of the podcast, you should 1 million percent call my podcast phone number and leave me a voicemail. You can tell me a story about a very special woman in your life that deserves a little bit of recognition, or you can just say hello, introduce yourself, and let me know how you found this podcast and why you've been enjoying it for so long. So I would really, really, really love to hear your voices and get to know you and feature your little shout out in my podcast episode. So if you are interested in calling, you can leave a two-minute voicemail at 562-270-4914. Cool. Well, I'm super amped on today's episode. We have another guest host who's joining us back on the mic, Andy Dominguez. You heard from her a whole year ago, and she's back to tell a story about a fierce as fuck woman who is very special to her and her family and is very closely tied to her Mexican roots. So we're going to keep this short today and just dive into this kick-ass episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Mimosa Sisterhood on Apple Podcasts so that you can receive brand new episodes straight to your phone the minute that they drop and leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Okay, cool, guys. Well, grab that glass of wine or bubbly and let's get ready to party. Andy, welcome back to Mimosa Sisterhood Pod, tuning in all the way from the East Coast. Welcome back to the show. I'm so happy you're here. Well, thanks for having me back. I've been patiently waiting for a whole year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Please don't wait a day longer than necessary. I am actively always looking for guests and you are needed on the show. (laughs) Great. I love that because every time I hear about a cool woman, I'm like, ooh, for Melissa's podcast. And I added to a note to my phone because I'm such a loser. (laughs) Okay, well, guys, Andy is back for another episode. You heard her, gosh, like almost literally like this time last year, maybe? I, yeah, I don't remember. Was, when was I it? I think it was the end of March because I recently reheard the episode because 
crazy like that. Um, <laughs> and I kept mentioning at the end, like, we'll see how things are in April because it was the beginning of the pandemic. And here's yeah. hopeful me thinking by April things would be cool. Nope. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a whole year. So. Yeah, it's been gnarly. So last time we recorded, you had covered Audrey Hepburn and yes. I covered Halima Aiden. Yes. Yes. And you know what? I actually just saw this in the news the other day, and I'd been thinking about telling you about it, that Halima officially retired from modeling. I saw that, and I also thought about telling you, and I don't know what just escaped my mind. I did see that. Yeah, crazy, right? Well, I mean, good for her. I would love to retire young. Well, also, I think it was like a personal moral decision where she's like, I ain't about this life. So if, if anybody remembers... It was a whole year ago, but Halima was a Somali refugee who had, like, one moved to Minnesota, won a beauty pageant, USA or whatever they are, ended up striking a modeling career. She worked with, like, Kanye for a while, and she was huge because she was a model that wasn't willing to, like, step away from her cultural heritage and religious beliefs, so she was often seen, like, photographed very conservatively, even in swimwear, like, her whole body clothes. So she was, like, very different for the industry, which is something we talked about in our episode. But she since said, fuck that. And she's like, <laughs> it ain't for me, homies. Um, which, Did like, it, all the power to her, you know? Yeah. What is she going to do now? Did it say? I I feel like she said she wanted to get back into, like, activist work, like, do a lot more type of, like, social work with other refugees. So I think just, like... Good for her. You know, it, it's one of those things where it's, like, you feel like you're living the dream, you know? You were you were once a refugee in Somalia, like in Somalia. Is it Somalia? Yeah, it's Somalia. Somalia. Right? Yeah. Okay. I keep You're thinking Somalia. It's right on brand with the podcast. <laughs> like it's like I know it's Som- Somalia. Yeah. Somalia people. Somalia. Somalia pretentious people <laughs> drinking wine. Okay. You know what, people? This is the Mimosa Sisterhood podcast. This is what you expect when you come here. (laughs) Yeah, but I just think it's funny because it's like everybody, you know, you have this dream as a child to become this it person and hit, you know, come to Hollywood and do all the stuff. And then you get there and you're like, wait, no, it isn't. It wasn't it. Like... I mean, it happens with a lot of people that hit, like, this level of fame and they're like, wait a minute, I hate this. And they're just like, maybe not for me. Yeah. But, I mean, good for her. She has pull now. I mean, she has, I'm sure, a following and all this media attention, which makes it a lot easier to um, – I know it sounds so horrible to say, but once you're famous, it's easier to do um, charitable work because yeah. you get much more attention versus a yeah. nobody. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) and you know, maybe, like, everything's just a stepping stone. Maybe Mm -hmm. becoming this huge, famous runway model was just the stone to get her the platform and the visibility and the networking that she needed to get to her next stone. Why do you have to be one thing in your lifetime? Yeah, Be multiple things. I know. Fuck it, yeah. Well, what's been happening for you since we last talked? Oh, my gosh. Um, So, I know it sounds horrible for me to say this, but I'm going to say it. The pandemic did me so well. Um, I used that time to really rebuild and restore my life. Um, When we first recorded that podcast, I didn't really have much furniture in my room. I was like kind of, I had a broken down car kind of getting, barely getting by and having that pause in my life 
really helped me rebuild everything. So I bought a car. I have a fully furnished room. Um, and now I'm like really high up in my career. And I decided that this year is going to be the year of yes. Um, so I'm saying yes to life. And so I booked a trip to Iceland. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was like, I'm vaxxed. I'm waxed. I'm masked. <laughs> Let's go. Dude, before this episode started, I was thinking about, I was going to say to you, all right, Andy, we know you're vaxxed, waxed, and ready to fack. So. <laughs> Hell What's yeah. The plan? I am ready to fuck. And um, <laughs> I, I'm just, yeah, I, I, I had planned a trip to go to Europe by myself, solo, a two-week trip. Um, I started planning it in 2018, saved literally all my money, had all these like dog-sitting jobs to save money to go on this trip in, in the beginning of 2020. <laughs> so um, yeah like I even I was dog sitting on my 30th birthday I was like sleeping on an air mattress watching a uh, oh really God. hyper dog but it was like Europe's on my mind so everything gets canceled I'm devastated but I say to myself 2021 I'll do it so I rebooked everything for April 2021 and then slowly everything got canceled again so I was so bummed out so the second so I think it might have been TikTok that said vaccinated Americans can go to Iceland. I'm like, I like crazy person, grab my laptop, search flights, search to make sure that I was real because can't believe TikTok. Um, reliable sources, people. So, yeah. and then I saw, yes, I was like, I got vaccinated in February. Let's fucking go. And I just said, fuck it, all the money that I had saved up for Europe. Let's go to Iceland. So I'm going to do a lot of activities. I'm thinking of doing the snorkeling thing between the two tectonic plates, like two continents, and doing an active volcano hike oh and seeing black sand beaches and diamond beaches, what are the hell, and hopefully make out with a cutie that's also vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when are you going? In June, like so soon. Holy I'm going shit. June 16th. Yeah. Are you going to go and, like, don't they have those, like, Icelandic um, – Hot springs? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm going to the oh Blue Lagoon. Oh, my God. And I'm going to live my best life. Oh, my God. Yeah. I am so excited for this. Are you going to, like, the main capital? I know I can't pronounce Reykjavik. it. It starts with an R. Yes. Oh, I, oh, I had to YouTube how to say <laughs> it. Yeah. I am going to stay in Reykjavik. Um, and I'm probably going to do, like, a day or two of just, like, walking around exploring Reykjavik. But it is very expensive to exist in Iceland. So, like, my plan is on the days that I'm doing those long tours is surviving off of yogurt and sandwiches and maybe, like, treating myself to a meal or two that's like super expensive but totally i mean they're famous for hot dogs so really I, and i love a hot dog so <laughs> i wouldn't mind making that my diet for the whole hell yeah. yeah are you staying in like hotels hostels no i'm staying it? in a hostel i know it's still covid times yeah, so maybe true. like a lot of partying and things won't happen so yeah. my expectations are really there to just reconnect with nature and whoever's on the bus with me to all my magical tours oh, yeah and then maybe just maybe a cute um is it nordic do they call them nordic people i think they're nordic yeah nordic cutie patootie some viking roots just tells me that he loves me yes. i'd be like yes yes so, yes we'll see. Yeah, that was my dream when I was going to go to Scotland and I was going to do like this whole five day um, hike in the highlands of Scotland. I was going to marry somebody Scottish and we're going to have Scottish babies, but that failed. So I'm going to give Iceland a shot. 
love it oh my god so cool i'm so excited for you i'm so jealous i can't wait to travel again you're gonna have the time of your life living your best post-pandemic life. Oh, oh my Year God. of yes. I'm telling you, girl, just year of yes. Get the tattoo. Get the thing you want. Just live your best life. Don't question it. We were deprived of happiness for a whole entire year. Year of yes. The year of yes. I love it. Fuck yes. Last weekend I went out. I was like, year of yes. I spent like $500, but it was so fun. <laughs> You know what? Seriously, though, we time is of the essence. We need to make up for what we lost, and nothing's promised. We know life's short, so yeah, things can change literally in a day's time. Yeah, fuck it. Say yes. Yes, I love that. Right. Well, hell yeah. Living our best lives over here. I love it. All right. Well, what are you drinking today? Okay, um, so I, I'm summoning spring because weather has been batshit crazy and like it was 30 degrees two days ago. Today's a little bit nicer, but I'm like, I need spring and summer. So hot girl summer wine, I'm drinking the Palm Ooh. Rosé by Whispering Angel, which is like the rosé of all rosés. I mean, like Whispering Angel is a Beyonce of rosés. Is it really? I've never had yeah, it. Yeah, everybody loves it. Um, And it's like the top rosé. So the palm, we can call it um, Solange Knowles of Rosés. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you see, um, it's, it's a cute so bottle. Cute. I love and it. And I love it because it's a twist top, so I don't even need um, an opener to get it open. Just twist that bitch open and drink it up. Yeah. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Where do we get this at? I haven't seen it at my at my go-tos, which are literally only World Market and Trader Joe's. <laughs> well, uh, See, the Trader Joe's in New Jersey don't sell wine, which is a travesty. Oh, shit. I, know. I forgot you told it's me this horrible. last time. Yeah. So this one I got in ShopRite, which is a supermarket, and they have like a separate ShopRite wines. I've only seen it like three or three times in different liquor stores. So keep an eye out. It's called The Palm by Whispering Angel. I like The Palm better. I've always said you can edit this out. It's kind of um, vulgar, but Whispering Angel sounds like a queef. Um <laughs> does right it's like a lady way of saying they queefed um <laughs> you know it's so funny is that that reminds me literally on easter like last earlier this month i was opening a champagne bottle and my boyfriend was standing right there and i always like to like bust out my old like waitress moves for him <laughs> to like show him how shit's handled and i was like about to open it and i'm like it has to be like a nun's fart. And he like looked at me like not understanding what I was talking about. And then all of a sudden as I'm opening it, it's like. <laughs> and he just started dying, like dying laughing because oh he finally like got what I yeah, meant. Yes. Like, I mean- <laughs> Like, you're not supposed to explode a champagne bottle like you see in the movies. Nuns fart. A nuns fart. Oh Especially my God, I'm when you're use serving, that. like, a rich person in San Francisco Bay, they want a nuns fart when their champagne opens. Like a little. P- <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that's like exactly like the whispering angel queef. <laughs> exactly. There we go. Ladies, we classy. <laughs> Oh, my God. So what are you drinking? It's amazing. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, my wine has nothing to do with bodily fluids or air. Damn it. But it is an incredible Sauvignon Blanc that I got from the Trader Joe's. Nice. 
And I'd been eyeballing it for a couple of weeks, and then they finally made a whole display just for it, and I felt like that was my calling. Ooh, a and shrine. I know. And I love a good sove from New Zealand. That's what this is. Marlboro, New Zealand. Sove Blanc 2020, baby. Um, it's just, like, really good. Normally, I try to, like, pair my wines with my lady, but I picked my lady yesterday, so I didn't <laughs> give myself enough time. Yeah, so we're just drinking. It's called Sauvignon Republic. It's bomb. I'm going to read you the back because I love me a good wine label. You do. It's so, like, it's just, I I don't know who wouldn't buy it after reading this. Okay. So, latitude 42 degrees south. A windswept terrier of hills and dry, gravelly clay riverbeds produces crisp tropical Sauvignon with gooseberry notes, herbal grassiness, and restrained minerality. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fuck. That sounds so lovely. (laughs) And it says that it's... The perfect pair with seafoods of all kind, in particularly sushi. And I will say I am covering a incredible Japanese woman today. So that is just coincidental. I love that. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, you always need a good sushi wine. Right. Um, yeah, my bottle doesn't say anything fun in the back except that drinking is not recommended for pregnant women. And that, Boo. you know. Yeah. And, it's, and the rest is in French. So that was a real downer. Thanks, yep. guys. Yeah. <laughs> we'll stare at the pretty front label with the pink and the palm yes. trees and the it's yes. so girly, man. It's just like moth to a flame. A pink rose bottle. Girls just go crazy. And I'm girls. Especially I go crazy. With the palm tree on it. Yeah. Straight to the pool with that bottle. Fuck it up. Yep. <laughs> Pump up that flamingo inflatable. Let's get it cracking. Please. That's, that's all I want. A pool. <laughs> right. all right well let's hop in you're gonna kick us off today okay so i decided to ask my aunts and my cousins for mexican women that um they thought they would like made an impact and i was given a long list of women from mexico and i kept going back and forth but i decided to pick leona vicario aka the mother of mexican independence and I thought it was important to cover somebody that fought during the Mexican independence because we're aided in fight. Because one Cinco de Mayo is around the corner, and I just must make this known, that is not Mexico's Independence Day. So Mexico's what do, in- what do we celebrate Cinco de Mayo for over here? Uh, I don't mar- even know. Margaritas. Yeah, right? Um, that was um, La Batalla de Puebla. So it's a, a a war against the, the French that Mexico had, and um, I guess in a sense we prevented the French from invading the United States. You're welcome. <laughs> but I, I guess Cinco de Mayo is a lot easier to pronounce for white people than Dieciséis de Septiembre. So, <laughs> so I think that's why they chose that one to just use it as an excuse to get fucked up. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to hop right in. I'm going to start with a quick quote about uh, from Leona. And it says, It is not love alone that determines the actions of women. The desire for glory and liberty of their homeland are sentiments not unknown to them. So and then this will all make sense once I read about her life. And I'm going to say a lot of things in my Mexican-Spanish accent because I just can't bring myself to say it with a 
Get white it, girl. girl. Word. So <clears throat> you roll that tongue. Yeah, <laughs> I'm taking a deep <laughs> breath for this one. Born Maria de la Soledad Leona Camila Vicario Fernandez de San Salvador in Mexico City in 1789 to a wealthy businessman from Spain and a mother from a prominent family in Toluca. During the year, she chose Leona and Vicario as her full name, um, which suits her because Leona means lioness, and then you'll see why it really fits her name. But Leona had a significant social standing and lived a really nice, wealthy life. Um, around the 1700s and around this time, Spain, Mexico was known as New Spain. It was predominantly a Spanish colony. So, given her so- social status, she was privileged to get an education. She read and collected Spanish and French literature, studied fine arts, enjoyed classical music, all the bougie girl shit that she could have gotten in. In a time where women were just not allowed to do anything, this is great for her mm-hmm. to be able to have access to this. And European literature at this time was filled with political rhetoric advocating the overthrow of of the monarchy. So naturally, Leona developed a rebel spirit. Yes. Both of her parents died in in 1807, leaving 18-year-old Leona orphaned with with a considerable fortune and in custody by Spanish law. A woman, even by 18, she needed to be in custody of a man. Mm -hmm. Sucks. Um, So she was in custody of her uncle, Agustin Pomposo Fernandez de San Salvador. A Mexican lawyer. He was um, her mother's brother. But Leona refused to live in a submissive life under her uncle's patriarchal views. So Leona fought and brought him to court to get the right to reside in her own property. And she won against her uh, lawyer uncle. So he was not a very good lawyer. Yeah. So it was very, um, like, people were whispering about this. Like, it was chaotic for her to live on her own but she fought and she won the right and she won the court battle um but her uncle's fragile male ego couldn't handle this (laughs) um so he purchased a property right next to hers i know fragile male ego Um, and then he decided to arrange for Leona to marry Octaviano Obregón, which is an attorney working in his firm. So without even her consent, was like, well, you're engaged to this dude now. Um, so which she luckily evaded. Um, he kept going back and forth to Spain. Um, and she just, she wooed another lawyer that shared her radical political agenda. And his name was Andres Quintana Roo. And it's very important to remember this name because we're going to talk about him in a bit. Um, which they let, they later would secretly marry while Obregón was traveling to Spain. So love that for her. She eloped, decided to say a big fuck you to her uncle. Yep. For like the second, third time. <laughs> yeah. And there many, many other times. She was just so badass. So given her interest in public issues, Leona was aware of the political drama that was unfolding in Mexico. And here's a quick history lesson about uh, Mexico's independence, how it kind of unfolded. In 1808, Napoleon invades Spain and takes King Charles IV prisoner. This unleashes a war against um, against the French and brings instability to Spanish colonies. Mexico at the time, like I mentioned, was known as New Spain, which was one of the most prominent colonies Spain had. But New Spain benefited the crown more than it actually benefited its 
inhabitant people. Mm-hmm. So um, that anger of the people living there. So insurgent groups began to form and cry for Mexico's independence from Spain. So really the turmoil that Napoleon created in Spain um, had a domino effect all the way down to Mexico's independence. Thus, the War of Mexican Independence began in September 16th, 1808, which lasted almost 12 years, and it took the lives of over 500,000 Mexicans. Damn. 12 years? 12 years. It is a fantastic story, Um, and I know you have Mexican roots, so I do advise you to, like, read up on Mexican independence. I think there's just, it's a great story to know. Um, So that was my brief history lesson. (laughs) Um, So back to Leona. Um, She joined Los Guadalupes, a secret society receiving and distributing insurgent correspondence. Leona used her banking connections and wealth to secretly finance various stages of the rebellion. So here you have a very wealthy woman, and she chose um, to join the rebellion and the group of insurgents to really just use her wealth for good. She later got involved in directly buying arms and acquiring raw materials to make cannons and artillery. She also purchased and shipped medicine to help out And so, you know, needless to say, our girl was all in into this rebellion. Yeah. But being an arms dealer was not enough for Leona. An arms dealer? (laughs) That is so funny when you think of it like that. I know, because you think of these, like, mafioso type of guys. (laughs) But this was, like, she was doing it for good, you know, Mm -hmm. for Mexico. So she teamed up with Andres Quintana Roo, the lawyer she had flirted and wooed earlier on, to write political articles and propagandist ideas. And while all of this was happening, her pro-royalist uncle Agustin, her uncle that we all hate, had no idea that Leona was aiding the fight for Mexico's independence, even though he lived next door. And while there's not much more into this that I could read on, I really wanted to just read more into that Agustin and Leona fight. Um, I'm like, he just, I guess, assumed he would just be like a kept woman in her house. Mm-hmm. So Leona evaded being caught for a long time, just aiding the revolution with her arms and writing propaganda under different pseudonyms, sending med- medicine out for the fighters. Um, so she was not caught for a while until one day one of her servants was carrying some of her letters and belongings and was apprehended and threatened with death by the royal t- by the royalists. So he gave her up. Uh, so Leona was in prison, but given her social standing, remember she was really high up yeah. in her social standing, she was not allowed to be brutally punished. Um, so she was just imprisoned at a convent. And this is like a convent prison. So she's in prison with nuns. It's called Belén de las Mochas. <laughs> You're, you need to go to jail, so we're going to send you with the nuns. <laughs> Quite honestly, the, that is jail. That is Catholic jail. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah. Um, and all of her wealth and possessions were confiscated. Leona was later freed from prison by three revolutionary patriots who posed as colonial officers demanding to interrogate her. So they were able to come in without question into the convent prison, and she basically walked right out of there with them. Yeah. Thank God for disguise. I mean, it's not like the nuns were probably going to go to war over it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I need to read more into this convent prison. I'm like, did anybody have a gun? Like, (laughs) was she chained or was she just like forced to pray? So many questions there. Um, So Leona was later um, reunited with Quintana Roo. 
Andres. And from 1813 to 1819, the couple traveled from one place to another working for the independence and living life of poverty and sacrifice, something that she really had never experienced growing up rich and just being a wealthy woman. During this time, Leona collaborated with newspapers El Ilustrador Americano, which roughly translates to the um, American Illustrator, and Semanario Patriotico Americano, which is um, a patriotic American weekly newspaper. Yes. Um, sometime into this, Leona and Andres were arrested, but they were granted amnesty from the Spanish royalists once again because privilege was on their side. Mm -hmm. And she she worked so hard for the revol for the Mexican independence. I really don't want to like bad talk her, but it really goes to show like the level of privilege and how far I can get you. Totally. It could have been anybody else, anybody else fighting for the independence, they would have been executed on the spot. So mm -hmm. having that Spanish um background in her because her father was an immigrant, etc., just sort of granted her the amnesty and she just kind of was okay, even though she was caught for trying to, you know, work against Spanish royalists. The war ends in 1821, and in 1823, the newly formed Mexican Congress rewarded Leona for her numerous sacrifices on behalf of the nation. She was given her some estates and most of her confiscated wealth back. Uh, back. So that's an overall um, summary of her life and here are some mm -hmm. fun facts about Leona and then we'll just sort of go into a deep conversation about how badass she was. Leona and Andres had a daughter named Genoveva, which Genevieve, um, 1818. And I think that's kind of what forced them to stop fighting so hard for the, in, um, the independence. Uh -huh. um, once you have a daughter, you just can't rebel yeah, and live totally. in poverty and traveling along. So after that, they were sort of surrender. And even though they knew they had amnesty, they, they weren't going to be executed if they mm -hmm. surrendered to the war. Um, I did read that at this time, most of the, the fighters and insurgents were dead, sadly. So... The war sort of started slowing down. They were winning, but they were sort of slowing down the pace of the war. So that's why they decided after Genevieve Genoveva was born to slow down the role. Leona died in 1842 in Mexico City and was the only civilian woman to have received a state funeral, which is usually reserved for precedents. What? So, the yeah. only... Wait, she was the only woman to receive a state funeral? A civilian woman. So oh, somebody, civilian woman. Yeah, so she didn't hold any political... Um, yeah. So it's the only civilian woman to have received a state funeral thus okay. far. Okay. Um, in 1910, Leona Vicario and Josefa Ortiz de Dominguez, which I considered covering, were the first women to be depicted in on Mexican stamps and only the second women to be depicted in Latin American stamps. So as you see, it's like only male mm -hmm. here. Um, Leona also appears in the five peso coin, surrounded by the words Bicentenario de la Independencia, so Bicentennial of Independence. So this came out around 2010. For the Bicentennial of the Independence, they decided to add her face to it. And while this is all amazing and how she's considered the mother of the ind mother of independence, mm -hmm. Andres Quintana Roo, her husband, had a whole ass state named after him. Oh, <laughs> she a got state? a she got a five peso coin years, a uh, two hundred years after all of her work, and her husband had a whole ass state named after him. 
Um, and the state of Quintana Roo is where um, you Americans love the most. Cancun is. <laughs> yeah. So, so in, in a way, I was like, wow, Mexico really honors the colonial women that fought for independence and really helped shape the country the way that it is. But it, it, it honors them as women, you know? <laughs> um, and it is better than in the United States. I feel the United States leaves the women out of history overall together. And in just in the recent years, thanks to podcasts like yours and movies, etc., we're starting to see more unknown history where women had involvement in the shaping of a country for yeah, many, right? many years. Yeah. So it is great that she is being honored in her coin. Um but she didn't get a state. <laughs> her coin. And her coin. So wait, that, so she's still visible on the coin today? Yes. And okay. there's many, like, where she's buried and everything. There's, like, a lot of things named after her in Mexico. So she really is honored for all of mm-hmm. her work. Same as Josefa Ortiz de Dominguez. No relation to me, even though we have similar last names. Uh, <laughs> I was like, Mom, is she my aunt? <laughs> My mom's like, you're so stupid. <laughs> oh I had God. to know. You I had like, to ask. Yeah, you needed course. to know. Yeah. Um, so Leona's commitment to change demonstrates how one woman can have a huge difference in history. Um, everything that she did during the time in which women, even women of, women of high status, were extremely opposed shows her level of character. She could have lived a comfortable, rich girl life and really not married that lawyer dude and just sort of bow down to her uncle. But she decided Mm to rise against it all and really fight uh, for the independence of Mexico. And she understood that the people deserve better than whatever the royal crown has given them. So hence Leona, Lioness, really fits her name. Yeah, Um, totally. And she really just had an impact in Mexico. You know, her and many other women just had a huge impact in Mexico. So there there were a lot of details in her life, but also not. So I really wish I could give you a more intimate look into her life. But the basics were she was an arms dealer. <laughs> she, <laughs> her world really, she said, this isn't privileged. This is, a, I am privileged enough to give this for the fight against Spain. Yeah. Um, and she was willing to give it all up just to see freedom in Mexico, which is more than I could ever do. Totally. Yeah. Well, and you know, too, is that, like, in terms of, like, Mexico not having freedom, like, she was probably on, like, the outskirts of, like, that hardship, you know, where because of her privilege and status, life probably wasn't as horrific for her as it was for surrounding people mm-hmm. but just knowing in general like this is my home and these are my people and I don't want to see you know shit hit the fan right she was willing to use her privilege to do what she could to prevent that from happening or change it or improve it and i mean look at america right now <laughs> There are a lot of people with fucking privilege that will turn a blind eye to any of the hardship that's happening. It's easier, right? Like, it's... Well, and I think a lot of people just don't care. I think there there has to be a a part of you as a human being to care about other people. Like, that's, like, step one. Do you even care about anybody other than yourself? (laughs) 
And the fact that she had like a privilege to learn how to read and write and have an education and really start reading about the monarchies being overthrown, she realized like we don't have to be submissive to the crown. Like this is Mexican land. There's mm-hmm. more Mexican people here than actual Spaniards. Like let's fucking take the country as it is and just roll with it, especially after, you know, Cortes and, you know, and its people came and sort of destroyed the Aztec Empire and the Mayan Empire. So I think it was really brave of her to say, give it all up, to even fight her uncle and go against him to just live on her own and not want to live under his rule. Yeah. Because the law said so. And, like, again, you know, when we hear stories about women like this, we're talking about, like, the 1800s. Yeah. Like, it's not 2020 where women can fight the streets topless and, you know, scream and yell in their bullhorns. Like, this is yeah a totally different time period where it is not at all normal, respectable, expected for women to even express that much opposition to mm-hmm. like the whatever's happening in like the government or the war like that's very unheard of and y- usually a massive risk like you are then thought of as a threat like people want to come at you and shut you down for having that uh, kind of even passion to even want to make change yeah i mean she was also in her 20s like it's crazy to think <laughs> because she was so young and she just decided to risk it all. And, and I wonder if she knew that because of her status and wealth that she knew she couldn't be killed by risking it all. But, I mean, who's to stop one rebel from shooting you, right? Like, yeah. It, some some psychopath. So I, I think her, her life is admirable. And I'm going to read over her quote one more time now that we know more about her and just to sort of make sure, sh- like, understand that. It is not love alone that determines the actions of women. The desire for the glory and liberty of their homelands are sentiments not unknown to them. Yep. I think it's a great quote because I think we sort of tend to put patriotism with men and not women. And so I think women could be patriotic and have that same sense of patriotism and protect the land. Um, In many countries in history, you can see patriotism is just men. Men fighting for the land. And she said, "Um, not just men. I'm not just here because of love. Like, Mm -hmm. I have glory and I want liberty. And that's why I'm going to fight for my country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's Leona Vicario. Um, Full name, Maria de la Soledad Leona Camila Vicario Fernandez de San Salvador. (laughs) Rolls off the tongue just swimmingly. And that's what you get when you're Mexican and Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) How many? Names is it? Um, let's see. One, <laughs> two, three, four. So four first names, and then you got all the last names. One, two, three. Yeah. So isn't it usually like you you adopt the names of like grandmothers on grandmothers on grandmothers, or how does that work? So yeah, sometimes. Um also like Maria is just like so. My mom, she's going to kill me when she hears this. My mom is Gabriela de la Luz. So she's Gabriela of the light. Um, and that just sort of gives you that. And the like very Catholic name that you give like an of the as a mm-hmm. first name. Um, Maria de la Soledad here means Maria of Solitude, which is horrible. But, you know, there we go. 
uh, you add so her mother's name was Camilla so Camilla is there with the name I don't know where Leona came from and it's probably a grandmother Mm -hmm. um a dead relative it's also very common that if a dead relative no matter who dies you get named after that um so my dad we have a semi-famous not really um uncle that big part of Mexican history his name was Belisario and my dad was almost named that and then luckily Somebody named Carlos died, and he ain't got named Carlos. <laughs> ain't nobody want to be Belisario, and then you're called Belly. <laughs> so you are given a lot of names. You sort of add some sort of Roman Catholic um, mm-hmm. spin to it, and then you add all the last names. So in Mexico, I mean, luckily my parents got lazy, and I only had the one name. I don't even have a middle name. So I'm, but in Mexico, I'm Andrea Dominguez Vargas. So I do have my mother's maiden name added to my range of last names. So you always have two last yeah. names in Mexico. Interesting. Yeah. I like both of my grandparents came, like, lived in Mexico and came to the States. And I don't have any recollection of either of them having any names other than their first and last. But I'm assuming they just got, you know, once they moved here, it just kind of. Yeah, you they, you sort of started racing it. My mom never uses De La Luz and like, and she mm-hmm. hates it. But I remember some of my aunts do have like really long names. Um, it. And you just sort of start snipping them in half because who cares? And in Mexico, you kind of just choose what you want to be called. Um, that's what she's like, <laughs> Leona. And you don't really go by your first name. Then Otherwise, everybody would just be named Maria. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think they give like, okay, choose which one you like the best. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. Well... That is so cool. I've never heard of her before. And I also just think it's like a great reminder that, you know, especially in today's day and age, we hear so much about the term privilege. Mm -hmm. And it's constantly used as an explanation as to like being able to recognize the ways in which injustices take place in the world, whether we're aware of it or not, or just like it's straight over our head. And, like, there's so much negative connotation to it right now, and justly so, because it it, it has caused a lot of fucking chaos for people's mm-hmm. lives for decades. Yep. Mm-hmm. A lot of great things for some people and a lot of not great things for others. But I just think this is, like, a really great reminder of being able to see a, a situation or an example of privilege and somebody that used it to benefit the greater good. And just even her probably knowing, like, I am lit as fuck. Like, I have so much power. I can do all this shit. And I can save and help a lot of people. And everybody else that's fighting right now for for the freedom of Mexico doesn't have the ability to be as successful as I can, given my status. So, you know, like, the things that I can accomplish are so much greater than, you know, Joe Schmo next to me. I'm going to take that responsibility and use it to do what the mass majority of people can't. And, like, it's such a great example of being able to use your privilege, you know, something that was just given to you at birth, nothing that you asked for, wanted, fought for, but recognizing you have it and making the best of it. Right. Like, the privilege that you have, use it to help others that don't have that level. Become an arms dealer. You might end up... (laughs) End up in the five peso coin. You know, you never know. You won't get a state, but you might get a coin and a stamp. So, 
I mean, I I really wanted to cover – I mean, I was given so many great women, so many artists, and Mexico is filled with fantastic women. Right. And I know you covered Frida Kahlo. And beyond that, Frida became a, such a an American culture um, icon for Mexicans, but – Digging deeper and everybody that my cousins gave me, I found so many fantastic, even mm-hmm. Hollywood actresses and that had their imprint on American culture. And I think it's important to point them out because sadly, due to a last shitty precedent, there was a big divide, I mean, oh, yeah. literally and physically created with Mexicans and Americans and... You know, they love to go to Cancun, they love to celebrate Cinco de Mayo, but they also love to be, you know, racist against our people and then really not know anything about who we are and where we come from and what we have created and done. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm I'm excited to cover more Mexican women, but I'm Hell I was yeah. excited to bring somebody from the uh, that helped in the independence specifically because not a lot of people know about Mexico's independence and what you know it also meant for the rest of the world. Yeah, one hundred percent. And that's Leona Chicario. <laughs> Welcome to the Mimosa Sisterhood, Leona. We yes. love you. <laughs> love it. So cool. Well, I've got a really awesome woman to cover tonight. She is somebody that I've had on the list for a long time. And I finally dug deep into her story and I was like, holy shit, this lady is kick ass. So uh, today I am covering... Junko Tabe, and she is the first woman to climb the highest mountain on Earth, Mount Everest, and she's the first woman to complete the seven summits of mountaineering. What? So I'll explain more what that is in her story. She just said Everest, and I'm like, badass. Yeah. First woman to climb Mount Everest. So she's super kick-ass, so I'll tell you a little bit about her. So Junko was born in 1939 in Fukushima, Japan. Fukushima might sound a little bit familiar to you, maybe not. If it does sound familiar to anybody listening, it's probably because in 2011, there was a huge earthquake that caused a massive tsunami that basically wiped out Fukushima. Fukushima. Yes, it was so tragic. It's bone chilling. I know. And um, I actually, that's something that kind of clicked to me. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, let's be real. I do not know, like, all the areas of Japan. <laughs> when I read Come on, Melissa. That, I was like, wait. It kind of, like, clicked, you know? So that's probably why. Um, and she was alive when that happened. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So Junko was considered a frail child, when she was a kid, but nevertheless, she began mountain climbing at the age of 10, and she got introduced to it through her class. They would go on, like, climbing trips to Mount Nasu in Japan. I mean, we sure as fuck aren't mountain climbing when we're kids in no, the United better States. better fucking gym. I used to get <laughs> basketballs to the face all the time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we're having to, like, play hopscotch on the asphalt. Um... <laughs> But yeah, she's she's going mountain climbing with her school. So that's pretty cool. And she really loved it. She loved that it was like a non-competitive sport. And she loved that she had the ability to be outside in nature with these like incredible views of the landscape. And she also loved the feeling of like reaching the top, you know, getting to that highest peak and being like, I accomplished this huge thing. So she was instantly passionate about it. But 
her family did not have a lot of money and this was considered like an expensive hobby. There were a lot of like materials you had to buy, ropes, you know, those little caribou metal things, like picks, like all kinds of shit. And it just wasn't something that the family was like able to fund at that time. So she was only really able to climb during her school years when it was offered through like a school program. And another important thing to note a lot of the children in Junko's hometown did not attend school after middle school. So oh. they'd often do middle school, quit, and either go on to just, like, be working full time or start families. In middle so, school? Yes. Families. Like, I guess. Or at least, like, being paired up with people. Not co- totally sure. Yeah, because I was like, oh, I got my period in middle school. Like, a could be right? a baby. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So, I don't know if there was, like, I mean, who knows if sex was actually involved or if it was more of the families, you know, arranging potential family. Right, like, prepping to be a wife. Yeah. So, really. it was very uncommon that one would go on, even men and and women, to go on after middle school but um her father was super against that he wanted all of his children to be really highly educated so he did what he could to continue their education as long as he could so she went on to high school and then she even went on to college and she attended showa women's university in tokyo where she studied english and american literature she had never been in a big city before so Tokyo, she was like, holy fuck. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I could imagine. <laughs> Culture shock. Like, what is this? And it didn't really go that well for her. So she fell into a little bit of a depression, just like totally out of her mix, out of her comfort zone. Like, I'm not into this big city life. Like, what's going on? But she was able to like balance this like super stressful change in her life by mountain climbing. After she graduated, she joined a women's climbing club and she learned how to do rock climbing and they introduced her to white mountain climbing, which was climbing on icy snow mountains. Stop. I don't know who is doing this or why. Why? <laughs> I can why? I can barely go down the steps of my apartment when it's icy and snow. It's so hard to exist with an ice. Yeah, she's out there now learning how to climb icy mountains. And so she loved it. And then after she was working with this women's club for a while, she ended up joining a few different male clubs. And they weren't happy to have her there. Of course. So also remember, we're in like probably the 50s right now. She was born in 1939. She's probably around 20. So we're at like some point in the 50s, maybe early 60s. And the men were like not having it. And so she received a lot of backlash for being there, wanting to be there, having interest in the sport. They questioned her motives for even pursuing uh, mountain climbing. They were like, one, this is a male-dominated sport, so, like, you don't really belong here. Two, are you only here because you're looking for a husband? Because we aren't aren't interested. (laughs) Oh, come on! Yes. (laughs) Which actually makes me think of the quote. Yeah. Of, like, women aren't always just here for love. love. We are here for, you know, our own personal interests and passions. It's not just about fucking love, dude. (laughs) 
I was going to say, to be fair, I do know a lot of my friends joined CrossFits just to find their husbands, which they did, and immediately <laughs> quit CrossFit. So. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. No, I mean, you just want a man with thick thighs. You've got you go <laughs> CrossFit. But yeah, you know, we're not all about love. We're just not all just trying to find husbands here. We're pretty independent women. Go on. Yes, for real. So... Junko said, like, fuck you, and she continued to climb with her male groups, and she eventually climbed all the major mountains in Japan, including Mount Fuji. And then in 1964, at 27, she met a hot piece of ass at the very top of a mountain (laughs) that she had just climbed. (laughs) So she got, she was with her friend, she climbed to the top of this mountain, her dream boat was at the top of it, and just so happened to be whipping up desserts at the top of this mountain that he was then passing out to everybody that had gotten to the top. Like, that's an instant sign that's your husband. Yes, that's what I want. (laughs) To be in the middle of Iceland and there's some dude making dessert and be like, do you want some strawberry shortcake? And be like, yes. Right? (laughs) That's what I'm saying. And so... Needless to say, she hopped on that ish ASAP, and two years later, they got married. They eventually had two children, a daughter and a son, and Junko says that one of the most wonderful things about her husband was his willingness to allow her to just be the climber, because he was a climber too, obviously. He climbed the top of that mountain and started making desserts, (laughs) but like... (laughs) He was kind of like, okay, out of the two of us, like, you're the one that's going to hit it big. So, like, you can take it. Like, be the climber. Take the life of climbing. Like, I'll kick back and watch the kids and cook and clean. Oh, my gosh. I love him even more. (laughs) Right? What a man. Well, also, this was the 60s in Japan. So, this was not something that men did. Like, this was not happening. This was not a thing. But maybe he was, like, a hippie lover, like... Well, he was a crunchy mountain climber. So, yeah, yeah, I think they were already, like, doing things different. But he was for sure willing to just, like, put these gendered stereotypes aside, even though it made him socially look like the weak man of of the couple. Snaps for him. Good for him. Major snaps for him. Yeah. (laughs) Good guy. We love a good husband in these stories, We do. We don't want no um, Uncle Agustin that's so (laughs) suppressive. No, we want more like him. Yep. Mm -hmm. So then in 1969, she establishes a women's mountaineering club called Joshi Tohan Club. And this was the first of its kind in Japan. And she later stated that the reason why she found it was purely based off the way that men had treated her in the climbing world. Like, they'd accused her of claiming to find a husband. They were like, you don't belong here. And so she was treated like shit from dude climbers even though she had already proven herself to be really like you know a great climber deserved to be there had climbed all these mountains she wasn't like holding the group back she was great so it was just really a sexist thing and that's why she established this women's only club and the joshi tohan club embarked on their first expedition in 1970 climbing the nepalese mountain anapura 3 They successfully reached the top and they became the first women and just first Japanese people in general to climb the mountain. So huge for them. 
Junko and one other member, Hiroko Hirakawa, were chosen to complete the final climb to the top. So I think what would happen a lot when they would go in these big groups together and climb mountains, they wouldn't all go to the very top together. I think that they'd climb it, but certain uh, more qualified people, more seasoned, would keep going. Mm -hmm. So her and her friend were chosen to climb to the very top, and they were accompanied by two Sherpa guides. And both her and her friend had brought cameras because they wanted to, like, capture pictures of themselves at the top of this mountain. No women or Japanese people had ever done it before. But when they got to the top, the temperatures were so cold that the camera's film cracked. Shut <laughs> up. take a picture. Oh, what a bummer. <laughs> I know. And she was quoted to say, the snow on the summit was rock hard, deflecting my ice axe when I tried to dig it in with my pick. Every movement, every movement was slowly executed. I placed my pack down and peeled off my over mitts. The wind jabbed at my hands like needles. Not I in, no words. Like I just want to instantly brutal. get in a hot tub. Yeah, that sounds so brutal. Here I am complaining about New Jersey winters. Oh no. Yeah. And so when they finished the climb, it was recorded that the temperature was negative sixteen Celsius. I don't know anything about Celsius, but I imagine that's fucking freezing. Cool as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Cool as fuck. So after they completed this gnarly ass climb, like I think it was pretty brutal for the group. Junko realized that she and the other Japanese women in her group had a problem. And it was the fact that they really struggled internally to overcome those Japanese cultural values that promoted them to have this, like, quiet strength. So they, like, just in the culture in general, it, I think it was, like, frowned upon to be a person that asked a lot of questions, that needed a lot of help. I think you were expected to, like, not be a burden, so to speak, to other people. And so you were to just, like, be quiet, be silent, listen to your instructions, and just do it. And if you had issues or problems, you kept it to yourself and just prayed for the best. Oh, no. <laughs> Which, like, doesn't work when you're hanging off an ice mountain by a pick. Yeah. Like, you're going <laughs> to die. You know what I mean? And so... After that trip, it became really apparent that, like, a lot of the women in the group were keeping quiet in order to, like, present themselves as stoic. And that's just the way it was. And so, basically, like, they had to, like, crack it in and be like, listen, homies, like, we're all going to die out here if we're prioritizing, like, our cultural right, speak up. representation over, like, our lives so y'all are going to have to, like, figure out your personal limits, ask for help when needed, like, communicate if, like, you're not doing well. Like, we need to, like, know <laughs> yes. what's going on. We're climbing mountains here. Cultural or, like, <laughs> death. I, yeah. I mean, at this point, like, fuck the rules and ask for yeah. help. You're yeah. going to die. Yeah. And so, like, this was kind of a big moment for them because, again, this is the 60s. It's Japan. These are a group of women mountain climbing, which is not normal. And so it was a big moment for them just as women to realize that, like, we're going completely against the grain here and we need to, like, fully soak that in. Mm -hmm. So 
you know what? Like everything you've been taught in your life needs to be kind of thrown out the window and we need to just own our individual selves and be who we are and ask for help and climb this mountain because like everything else doesn't fucking matter. So after they conquered that mountain, they then decided that they were going to tackle Mount Everest. Like also only 37 people had attempted Mount Everest at this time period and they were going to pursue that after having only done one mountain together. (laughs) So like that was a huge, 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 huge jump that they were making and really ballsy for this group. Yeah. Considering that people die when they climb Mount Everest. (laughs) Yeah. A hundred percent. And so they were like, whatever, we're going to do it. And they ended up creating like their own team I think within this club of women, they then did like a smaller tiered team that was going to go to Mount Everest and they called it the Japanese Women's Everest Expedition. It contained 15 members and most of them were working women who came from like a range of professions and then two of them were mothers, including Junko. And so they apl- you have to like apply for a climbing permit. So they applied in 1971, but the Nepalese government was like, eh, how about you guys go like climb this other mountain? Like that's better suited for you. Go to the kiddie pool. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and they were like, fuck you. No, we're going to climb Mount Everest. Like that's what we want to climb. But they didn't like the Nepalese government like didn't want them to do it like particularly because they were just a group of women they were like you don't need to be climbing Mount Everest like get the hell out of here so they Mm -hmm. kept like not approving this permit for no reason other than we don't think you should do it and like it wasn't like they were like oh we are we're gonna sign up for mountain climbing for the first time today like these were a group of women that had been doing this for like the past 10 years of their lives so they had every like they were more than qualified to climb this mountain But it just kept getting pushed and they kept pushing it and they kept pushing it. It took four years for them to get their permit approved to climb Mount Everest. And it's almost like the Nepalese government was like, if we just keep pushing it out, they'll get over it and they'll move on. They never did. Holy shit. Yeah. So four years later, they finally get their fucking permit approved to climb Mount Everest. And Junko needed sponsors for this expedition so she was reaching out to like a lot of different companies to help sponsor their their group from like you know they have to camp while they do this mountain so they have to like get camping supplies food like all the hardware all the equipment like there's usually camera people there to like film it so it takes like a lot of money to like put on a thing like this for that many people so they need sponsors but all the people she was reaching out to were telling her things like, shouldn't you guys be raising children? Like, what are you doing trying to climb this mountain? So just getting a lot of pushback. But she eventually did find last-minute funding from a newspaper and a television company. Um, But there was still... 1.1 million yen that was needed to cover like their trip but in the u.s dollars that's like only about five thousand dollars oh it's still a lot of money to climb a mountain still a lot of money so junko raised the money herself she taught piano lessons to save money for this five thousand dollars that they needed um she also saved money by making a lot of her own equipment from scratch so she made her own waterproof gloves out of the cover of her car and she sewed trousers from old curtains 
So, like, a lot of, like, that money they needed to raise, she ended up just, like, making things herself so that they didn't have to get that extra money. Crazy. And then after a long training period, so they still trained for, like, I don't even know how long, like, nine months or something before they were, like, okay, we're ready to do this now. They finally made the expedition in May 1975. The group attract a lot of media attention because, again, there were 15 women who were climbing Mount Everest and had only been climbed 37 (laughs) times and everybody felt like they needed to be home raising their kids and having families. So it caused a lot of, like, uproar. So when they started the trek, they had journalists with them, a television camera crew, and six Sherpa guides that, like, assisted them along, like, different parts of this climb. And then on May 4th, the team was camping at 20,000 feet when an avalanche struck their camp. Junko and four of her fellow climbers were buried under the snow. She lost consciousness until a Sherpa guide dug her out. And luckily, there were no casualties, but they were bruised and injured by the incident. And Junko could barely walk, and she was forced to spend the next two days recovering. But as soon as she was able to, she was up and at it again, and she resumed the expedition and continued to lead her team up the mountain. They'd literally (laughs) been buried by an avalanche. Guys, it's a sign. Let's turn around. (laughs) She got dug out by a Sherpa. Like, that's nuts. So although the team had originally planned to send two women up to the peak of Everest, Mm -hmm. accompanied by at least one Sherpa, there was numerous bouts of altitude sickness, which meant that the team's Sherpa could only carry the number of oxygen bottles required to accommodate two climbers. But only, so that meant that only one woman could continue because the Sherpa and one other person. So only two oxygen tanks, which like the fact that they even need oxygen tanks to climb this fucking mountain. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not doing this. What is a need? (laughs) What is a need to do this? (laughs) And so after much discussion, Junko was nominated to complete the climb. And it took her six hours to get to the highest peak after she left her group. She, during her travel near the peak, she became furious to discover that she would have to cross a thin hazardous ridge of ice that had gone completely unmentioned in previous accounts by other people that had already climbed the mountain. Like, everybody failed to mention, like, the worst part of the climb, which she had to discover right then on the spot and she wasn't prepared (laughs) for. So she crawled along it sideways and uh, later described it to be the most intense experience she's ever had in her life. And then 12 days after this avalanche, on May 16th, 1975, with her Sherpa guide, she became the first woman to reach the summit of Everest. So she did it. Holy shit. And she was showered with so much attention for her win. When she came down the mountain, there was a huge parade held in her honor. And then when she returned to Japan, she received a, like, At the Tokyo airport, she received thousands of cheering supporters that were there to just, like, congratulate her on her accomplishment. Um, She received messages from the King of Nepal and the Japanese government. There was a television miniseries made about the Everest expedition with featuring her as, you know, someone that had climbed it. And she made multiple personal appearances across Japan. But 
Junko being Junko was so uncomfortable with this level of fame. She told the media that she preferred to be remembered as the 36th person to climb the summit of Everest rather than the first woman to climb it. Mm-hmm. So she was both of those things, but she didn't <laughs> want it to be the wo- first woman that climbed Everest. She didn't like that kind of attention what or said, like, like fame's not for everybody. Yeah, she was yeah. so like uncomfortable about it. But I also feel like that goes back to these cultural Japanese norms of like being quiet, being humble, mm-hmm. not asking for like attention, not burdening people, not being the not center stage help. kind of thing. Yeah. So, like, kind of sucks, but, like, it's just, you know, that's just how she grew up and was raised, and she didn't really want that kind of attention. And so, um, she later goes on to climb the highest mountain on each continent, which was referred to as the Seven Summits. So, she climbed Kilimanjaro. Yes, Kilimanjaro. There we go. all of these I don't wrong. know why I know that but I know that <laughs> she climbed Kilimanjaro in Africa mm-hmm. Mount Aconcagua in South America she climbed Denali in North America Mount mm-hmm. Elbrus in Europe Mount Vincent in Antarctica and Pankajaya in Indonesia and Kartasens Pyramid in Australia And upon her successful climb of Pankak Jaya, she became the first woman to complete the Seven Summits Challenge. Oh, my God. I didn't even know that was a thing. (laughs) Yes, she did it. First woman to climb all of those mountains, which are the highest mountains on each continent. Good for her. Isn't that fucking crazy? That's crazy. Yeah. Totally crazy. How old was she at the time? Like in her 30s was maybe? Or like, Um, no, I think the older. first one that she did was 1980. So she would have been, uh, let's see, 41. So yeah, not very old. 41 years old. I mean. Killing it. I, I got tired walking a mile to right? dump trash. So. <laughs> Yeah, this lady is not fucking around. Good for so, her. by 2005, she had taken part in 44 all-female mountaineering expeditions around the world. She had a personal goal of climbing the highest mountain in every country in the world, and by the end of her lifetime, she had completed at least 70 of these mountains. So, that's fucking a lot. 70 <laughs> mountains, give me a break. <laughs> Um, she never accepted corporate sponsorship after Mount Everest. Wow. Um, she insisted on remaining financially independent of all of her climbs. So she saved money to fund her expeditions by making paid public appearances, guiding mountain climber tours, and tutoring local children in music and English. Which is, again, I think goes back to that same thing of, like, I don't want to accept, like, money from people, like, just this, like, constant humbleness of, right, exactly. no, I, I don't say, deserve, like, you know, I don't deserve help. Humbling. I think that's, like, what it is. Yeah. It's like, get your money, lady. Are you kidding me? Get, get paid. Get work. Yeah. <laughs> You're already working hard enough to get to the top of the highest mountains in the world. I know. Just like, maybe what? take a break by get accepting money. Get that money, girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. 
So that was just something about her. And so a lot of the times friends and supporters would donate food. They donate equipment and she just made her own. She she climbed with what she was able to either get donated by friends and family or that she was able to fund herself through all of her extracurricular like appearances, tutoring, whatever she was doing. And then she also became really passionate about ecological concerns. So in the year 2000, thousand she completed her postgraduate studies at Kyushu University and she was focusing on environmental degradation of Everest which was caused by waste left behind by climbing groups which apparently is a fucked up thing that is very common people climb mountains and just like leave all their shit there their camping gear their trash like I mean, I guess it's not like there's, like, waste, res- you know, bins to put your garbage in. But, okay. like... Okay. But, like, when I go hiking, it just looks like, <laughs> leave it better than you found it. So, you, right? bring, you put your trash in your backpack. Yeah. So, I guess that's not as common as you would imagine by people that climb mountains. Um, no. So, she made it, like, a huge mission of hers later in her life to, like, really focus on this particular problem. And then she also led and participated in cleanup climbs in Japan, where they'd literally go on mountain climbs and just, like, clean up, like, beach cleanup, but, like, climbing mountains cleanup. And she would do that in the uh, also in the Himalayas with her husband and her children, so that's really cute. And then in between 1996 and 2008, she published, wrote and published seven books so tapping in her education that her father promoted God, that she yeah. have and her English literature degree, she was pumping out books later in her life. This woman just has, like just doesn't know how to stop. Yeah, she keeps going. She just has a lot to offer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, like what I said when I first started, following the Great East Japan earthquake in 2011, which caused a massive tsunami in her hometown, she began organizing annual guided excursions up Mount Fuji for school children that were affected by the disaster. So it was just something that she, a way for her to give back to her community who had really suffered from the destruction of that tsunami. Uh, And then a year after that, in 2012, she was diagnosed with stomach cancer, but she continued with many of her mountaineering activities. In July 2016, despite her advancing illness, she led an expedition of youth up Mount Fuji for the very last time. Oh my god. And three months later, three months later, she died in a hospital on October 20th, 2016 at 77 years old. Before her death, an astronomer named an asteroid after her. They called Very it fitting. 6897 Tabe. And on November 19th, 2019, a mountain range on Pluto was named Tabe Montez in honor of Junko's mountaineering accomplishments, which is so cute because apparently this is a thing. People are being like honored on the mountains of Pluto, which I had no clue was happening. I'm like, but there's like see mountains in Pluto. There's a particular theme around which mountains get honored and who's allowed to be honored to these mountains. And the theme is historic pioneers who crossed new horizons in the exploration of the earth, sea, and sky. That's really cool. Is that so cool? That's so cool. That's really, that's a great way to be honored. I know. So she's honored out on the mountains of Pluto 
Um, and to end on a quote, which I always love to do, she was quoted to say, I don't know how or when I'm going to die, but I'll look back and think I had an amazing life. Year of yes. <laughs> Year of the yes. Year of yes. <laughs> I love that. My God, this woman just like had no stop. She just yeah. kept going. I mean, she, I mean, she's just did so much. Like, I mean, one, I think just most important thing to recognize mm-hmm. is just like breaking out of these gendered stereotypes, out of these cultural norms, these expectations of how one needs to behave, what they need to do um, from the get go, which I think was you know something that we can think about her father kind of instilled in her as a child as I know you're not going to quit school and go to work or become a mom after middle school you're going to carry on you're going to get an education you're going to learn things you're going to explore the world Mm -hmm. and she did that and then she went on to marry a husband who was just as great as her father who then you know, made sure that she could continue to live her best self and do things that were 1000% against the norm of their culture. She was not the mother toting woman. And I feel like, (laughs) I feel like even if her father or husband wouldn't have been this way, like she wouldn't have permitted them to stop her. I feel like this fire was burning within her. Oh yeah. No matter what. For sure. It was burning 100%. But I also just think that like, Having those male figures support her going outside of the expectation, like, that's huge. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important, like, for dads out in the world to, like, instill that kind of confidence and, like, just um, belief in the women in their lives that, like, no, you're a lot more than just a childbearing woman to cook and clean. Like, (laughs) you know, you can do a lot of things and we want you to do a lot of things. Just as long as you can do it, go for it. Yeah. So I just love a good man and every every badass woman's story. Absolutely. I think it's so important, yeah. you know, how it's not just about women fighting for themselves, but the men in their no, lives can fighting be for them too. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I love that. And then, yeah, she just, she did so much. She did, like, had one of the craziest, scariest hobbies that exists under the sun. She got hit by an avalanche and then still went on to conquer the seven summits of the yeah. world. You see- <laughs> You say Everest and I think death and you just like awful like hunger famish just yeah wow so yeah she's a remarkable woman Junko Tabe so cool um great woman to know and I'm just so amped on her so fucking hell yeah to her oh my gosh that Mount Everest I I could never (laughs) yeah no I mean. It's nuts. Like, it's even scary just to be in the climbing gym and get to the top of the pretend rock that you're climbing. <laughs> I'm terrified of those places. I'm like, it doesn't look that hard. And I'll go down the Izzy and halfway through. I'm like, I'm so scared. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty gnarly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what well, badass women for badass today's show. Women, yeah. Fierce in their own ways. I love Absolutely. it. And they're so different, but so badass in their own way. Yeah. Well, cheers. I love this. Cheers. I know I just almost like down on my wine. <laughs> Me too. We, we had a good episode. It was yeah. pretty fucking good. I enjoyed myself. <laughs> I had a I good time that. today. I love that you enjoyed yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. Wasn't that a fun one? I swear to God, Andy and I were cracking up throughout the entire episode and... 
I freaking love that because the funniest thing is that her and I have literally only met each other one time in our lives and that was probably like seven years ago and that is the definition of sisterhood right there boom and on that same note is there a woman in your life that you think would either love this particular episode or maybe just love the mimosa sisterhood podcast in general if so open up apple podcasts or spotify and text them the link to this podcast right now. Sharing is literally caring. It is the best, cheapest, and kindest way that you can show your support to me and to this podcast. And it's what will help keep us alive, help continue our growth, and help us reach people out there that don't know that we exist but have been dying to find a podcast exactly like ours. So yeah, help your homie out. Help your sisters out. Let's do this. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning into another episode. I love you all so much, and I'll see you next week. Bye.